Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Jim Melnick continues our series of messages on the Gospel according to Mark. Today, looking at Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 34. And now, here's Jim. Good morning, everybody. Well, have you ever been accused of doing something falsely that you never actually did? Now, if it was something as minor as when you were a child and someone accused you of taking that last chocolate chip cookie out of the cookie jar when you never did, it's something that's probably soon forgotten. But if it's of a more serious nature, it can have everlasting ramifications, not only for the one accused, but also for the accusers themselves. For many Canadians by age or older, the name David Milgard is synonymous with wrongful accusations and convictions. David Milgard was a 16-year-old teenager who was arrested, accused, and subsequently convicted of raping and murdering a 20-year-old nursing student in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. He spent 23 years in prison before DNA evidence proved his innocence. Jesus faced repeated accusations during his ministry on earth, different than those faced by David Milgard, but every bit as serious not only for Jesus, but also for the ones who brought those accusations against him. The text this morning that we're looking at, Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to the end of the chapter, breaks down into three sections. There is a section that has that accusation that was brought against Jesus. But we're also going to be taking a look at Jesus setting apart 12 of his disciples to be his closest students. And we're also going to take a look at an encounter between Jesus and his family. Well, let's start off this morning with verses 7 to 12 in the lead up to Jesus choosing and setting apart those 12. Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him, for he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Well, here Mark continues to take us on this fast-paced journey through the account of Jesus Christ. Mark covers a lot of ground in 16 chapters. And chapter 3 continues with that uh, pace. And we have a pivotal moment this morning in the life of some of Jesus' disciples. But before we get to that account, we come across this account of just how popular Jesus was becoming amongst the people. Keep in mind that Jesus' ministry lasted less than four years as an adult. And social media in those days consisted of someone traveling from village to village on foot or by donkey or best horse spreading the word. High-speed internet, it was not. And yet we have the statement by Mark that a large crowd from Galilee followed him. This crowd drew people from the region, not just of Galilee, which is around the Sea of Galilee, but also from Jerusalem and Judea to the south and even farther south in the area of Edomia, which is around the southern edge of the Dead Sea and north of the Sea of Galilee, around Tyre and Sidon. This sounds like a vast area when you listen to the places named. And in Jesus' day, it was a large area to cover, 
keeping in mind the mode of transportation people had 2,000 years ago. But by today's standards, we would think of it as a very small parcel of land. You see, modern-day Israel would fit into Lake Erie. And the area that we're talking about today is not much bigger than modern-day Israel. But 2,000 years ago, people had to be motivated to make such a journey if you were riding even a donkey or a horse. Well, what was the motivation for people to make such a hard and possibly dangerous journey? It was to hear Jesus the teacher and to be touched by Jesus the healer. Some were even starting to whisper, could this be the son of David, the Messiah? The crowds were getting so large that Jesus told his disciples to have a boat ready so that they may escape, they, so that they may escape as the crowds pressed in against them. Verses 11 and 12 contain some interesting things that uh, the other Gospels also record throughout Jesus' ministry. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Not only was Jesus healing people of medical afflictions, but he was also casting out evil or unclean spirits, as they're also referred to in different translations. Now, the account here in Mark 3 doesn't specifically state that Jesus was casting out these unclean spirits, but we know that Jesus did this by earlier accounts in Mark, in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28 it reads, They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue, who was possessed by an evil spirit, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. In both accounts, what's really interesting is that these unclean spirits recognize who Jesus is. And in the account in Mark chapter 3, it says that they fell down before him. Now, I don't believe that these unclean spirits fell down before Jesus in a reverent or a worshipful state. But I believe they were recognizing the authority that Jesus had over them. Both of these accounts and the others in the Gospels record Jesus giving strict instructions for these unclean spirits not to reveal who he was. The time for this had not come. And in all likelihood, it would not be these unclean spirits that God would choose to reveal his one and only son coming to this earth. It's interesting that evil spirits or unclean spirits recognized who Jesus was. But as we'll come to see later in Mark, teachers of the law, scribes, did not. Well, let's continue on with verses 13 to 19. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve that he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Bornorges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now we get to the part where Jesus sets apart 
12 of his disciples. These 12 will be close to Jesus, they will be taught by Jesus, and they will be sent out by Jesus on a short-term mission trip that we'll read about later on in the book of Mark. They were to be special representatives commissioned by Jesus. These 12 that Jesus chose seemed like a motley crew. There were five fishermen who would have been part of the skilled trades of their day. There was a despised tax collector. There were two sets of two brothers. Half, we don't know their occupation. One was a doubter. Some were given descriptive name changes. Some had the story of their calling by Jesus Christ to be, their, to be his disciple recorded in the Gospels. Some we know almost nothing about. They appear pretty much in name only. One would betray Jesus, thus fulfilling prophecy. Earlier we learned that Levi, or Matthew, as he is also known by, was referred to as the son of Alphaeus. Well, James is also referred to as the son of Alphaeus, but it's believed these two are not brothers. They simply had two separate fathers who had the same name. Then we have Thaddeus, someone we know almost little about. But it's interesting in John chapter 14 that John refers to Thaddeus as Judas, and in brackets, not Iscariot. Quite a description of these twelve. Jesus obviously picked these men not because of their resume. I mean, if they were using their resume to apply for a job today, they probably even wouldn't make it to the interview stage. They were not men who were learned in the scriptures. They had no influential qualities about them. They didn't have anything that appeared to be useful in their background that would suit them for the mission that Jesus would later send them on, that is to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And as it says in Luke chapter 19, to cure diseases and heal the sick. But as any wise mentor or supervisor would say, gives me someone who knows absolutely nothing at all what I need them for, but someone who has a heart that is willing to learn and I can teach them everything they need to know. And so we have Jesus, who had what every human resource person wished that they had. And that's the ability to not only know, but to judge the heart. And that's what Jesus did with these twelve. He picked them for the heart, not for their resume. At times I wonder if Jesus felt like trading in these twelve. At times they seemed to struggle learning the lessons being taught to them by the Son of God. But as we can follow their lives in the New Testament, they not only learned these lessons, but some of them went on to become instruments used by God in the establishment of the early church. Well, now we come to a set of verses in Mark, which uses an interesting literary technique of sandwiching a very serious accusation between two accounts of Jesus encountering his family at that time. I want to look at these two instances of Jesus' family trying to get his attention together at the same time so we can better understand them. The first one is found in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, which reads, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went in to take charge of of him, for he said, he's out of his mind. The second account is found at the end of Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and he told them, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked around at those seated around him in a circle, 
And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. In this first slice of bread, in this literary sandwich, we're not told who the family members were that were trying to take charge of Jesus or seize him, as some translations read. It's possible, maybe, maybe even probable, that in both translations it was his earthly mother and step-siblings who was trying to get his attention and trying to take control of Jesus. Or it could be some other relatives who have heard of the commotion that Jesus' ministry was starting to, uh, to produce. And they wanted to take charge of Jesus before he did harm to himself or possibly harming the family name. What's more important than the who in this case is their attitude and their lack of awareness of who Jesus was. The members of Jesus' family, especially his mother and his half-siblings, must have known something was different about Jesus. Something was special about him. He was no ordinary family member. Growing up with Jesus must have been difficult. I mean, every time one of his younger siblings would get into trouble as they were growing up, it would have been so tempting for Mary to say, why can't you younger kids be so much more like your older brother Jesus? He never gets into trouble. Oh, there was a time that he wandered away back to the temple when he was 12 and we had to go look for him, but that was more of an inconvenience, not really much trouble at all. I'll tell you, if I was one of those children, I would have been grinding my teeth so much that they would have been ground down in frustration. Now, I'm being a bit cheeky here, but sometimes I really do wonder, what would it have been like growing up with the Son of God in your family? Not really knowing who he fully was, but knowing something was very special about this person. Perhaps they thought he was a prophet, someone like his cousin John. And to be fair, his family didn't really know who he was, I think, because Jesus withheld a lot of that information from them. And we can certainly see the attestment to that by what he said to the unclean spirits, preventing them from telling the crowd who he really was. It would not be until after his death and resurrection that at least some of his family members would come to truly understand who Jesus was. And in fact, his half-brother James would go on to be one of the leading elders in the early church in Jerusalem. In those last, three, in those last verses in chapter 3, when someone was sent in and told Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus replied, who are my mother and my brothers? And when he said he looked around and seated in a circle around them and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus was not rejecting his earthly family or implying that Mary and his, his half-siblings were no longer of, of any importance in his life. We can find the evidence that that was not the case in John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27, which reads, When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. As Jesus hung on the cross, he made sure that his mother would be looked after. We hear nothing of Joseph, Mary's husband, when Jesus becomes an adult, in all likelihood, Joseph had passed away and Mary was a widow at that point. And in response to the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother, and I believe out of love that Jesus had for his mother Mary, even in the midst of the agony on the cross, Jesus made sure that Mary would be cared for. 
So what was Jesus implying by the statement, here are my mother and my brothers, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Well, Jesus was obviously speaking metaphorically. In his answer to the rhetorical question, who are my mother and my brothers? Jesus uses the moment to teach those around him who belongs to God's family in the broader sense. He goes on, he goes on even beyond those seated around him when he replies, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This would be one of the earliest examples in the New Testament of the reference to the fact that those who put their faith and trust in God and carry out his will become part of God's adopted family. Well, let's move on to the third part of this message this morning, the part that falls between that literary sandwich, the part that falls between the two accounts of Jesus interacting with his family. We have an accusation, a very serious accusation brought up brought against Jesus by some scribes or teachers of the law. We can pick that up starting in verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided... He cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. There's an account of Jesus healing a man who's both blind and deaf. That's found in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 32. And this man was also said to be demon-possessed. After this man was healed, some Pharisees there at the time accused Jesus of casting out the spirit by the power of Beelzebub or Satan, just as the scribes accused Jesus of in Mark chapter 3. Jesus responded to the Pharisees in Matthew in the same manner that he responded to those scribes in in, uh, the book of Mark. In Mark's account that we're looking at today, Mark doesn't record a specific healing that the scribes were referring to. And it's possible that Matthew and Mark are referring to the same event, but it's also possible that these are two separate encounters that Jesus had with the religious leaders. It's possible that they are not the same people making the same accusation. You see, scribes were often associated with Pharisees, but not all Pharisees were scribes. And again, what's most important is not the who in this case, but rather the accusation and the consequences of those who were making it. When we were studying the miracles of Jesus a little while ago, one of the miracles that was assigned to me was the healing of this man who was deaf and blind that was found in Matthew chapter 12. And I want to review this morning a little bit of what I taught then, because I think the lesson that was found in that chapter, in Matthew chapter 12, and what we find here in Mark, is very prominent today in our lives. In Matthew's account, when Jesus was accused of being able to drive out demons through the power of Satan or Beelzebub, the prince of demons, Jesus responded by asking, if that's the case, then by whom do your followers drive them out? The people were beginning to openly wonder, could this be the son of David? 
And so we have to ask ourselves the question, was it jealousy that caused these Pharisees and scribes to make this comment? Or did they see Jesus as a threat to their power? Or did they actually believe that Jesus was in league with Satan? The authors of the Gospels don't give us any direct answers to these passages, but I think we can look at the circumstantial evidence to come up with a strong probability of what that answer is. If the Pharisees did believe that Jesus was actually a member of Satan's realm, then the logic of a divided kingdom not being able to stand is something that would have caused them to have second thought, or it certainly should have caused them to have a second guess about their accusation. And certainly the parables that Jesus spoke in support of his divided kingdom statement should have further persuaded them that this couldn't be the answer. That is, if their ears were open to hearing the answer. Now we have to remember not all Pharisees had their ears closed. And we have to remember not to put them all in the same basket or paint them with the same brush. You've all heard the story of how Nicodemus came to Jesus at night looking for answers. Nicodemus's ears were open to listening to what Jesus had to say. And we can see by Nicodemus's actions in the future that what Jesus had to say to him had a profound impact on his life. I think that the more likely answer is that these Pharisees or scribes were either jealous of the fame that accompanied Jesus or they saw him as a threat to their established power and the influence that they had over the people. The people were beginning to wonder if Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah, David's descendant who would come and rule the nation and heal the nation. And this set the Pharisees and scribes on a path that whether they realized it at the time or not, caused them to be at odds with the one who created the heavens and the earth. Now, Jesus being God knew their thoughts. This is a totally unfair advantage in any war of words, but who am I to say God can't make up his own rules? Jesus didn't always defend his authority this assertively, but in these two passages in the Matthew and the Mark accounts, he puts forth a compelling case why this accusation did not hold water. Jesus' first argument in this case against the accusation was a divided kingdom statement. And Jesus pointed out that if he was indeed casting out demons by, the Satan, by Satan's power, then Satan would actually be working against himself. And why would Satan let someone cast out a demon and free a man that he already had control over? To do so would divide Satan's kingdom and cause it to fall. Jesus' second argument was that by driving out demons, he was actually proving that he was greater in power than Satan. Jesus used the parable of first having to Overpower a strong man when you enter his house before you can carry off his possessions. Think of it this way. Think of Satan as being that strong man who had accumulated a kingdom full of wealth that is the souls of men and women. He has acquired those souls through dishonest gain. And now Jesus was symbolically kicking in the door of Satan's kingdom and binding Satan and releasing those captives. What Jesus was implying that he not only has the authority, but he used that authority to first overpower Satan by casting out those unclean spirits. And then he carried off or rescued those souls from the domain of Satan, whom he'd healed. There's an interesting field trip that Jesus took his disciples on that also emphasizes the power that the Son of God has over Satan. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 18 reads, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. 
Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Caesarea Philippi at that time was in the northern part of modern-day Israel, and it was a hotbed for idol worship. This would no doubt have been a fitting place for Jesus to tell his disciples, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Here, symbolically, in front of Satan's kingdom, Jesus expressed that the gates of hell will not stop the church that Jesus had come to this earth to begin. In any fortress, gates are only ever used for defense. They're never an offensive weapon. And Jesus was pointing out that Satan has no defense against the power of God. This is also where we come to a difficult and for some an even frightening part of the passage. And to understand it, we have to look at not just these verses that we're looking at today, but we have to look at the Bible as a whole and the context surrounding these verses. For some, the verses that follow has caused a great deal of anxiety for what some call the unforgivable sin. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Jesus invites the people to make a clear choice and he speaks directly to the scribes in this case in Mark. They must either be with him or else they will be against him. And then he gave a strong warning for those moving away from him with their accusation. Now it's understandable that some would not comprehend who Jesus was. Even his disciples struggled with that at times. And I believe Jesus was making allowances for this as evidenced by his statement. And in the account in Matthew, Jesus specifically said, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But while the person of Jesus Christ was not fully comprehended, the power evidenced through him, as we see in these miracles, should never have been misunderstood, especially by the religious leaders. And this warning was most of all directed to these Pharisees and scribes who were the spiritual leaders of the people. The nation, because of its leaders, was on the brink of making a decision that would bring about irreversible consequences. They were about to uh, attribute incorrectly to Satan the power the Holy Spirit was exercising through Jesus and thus blaspheme the Holy Spirit. But why would speaking against the Son of Man be forgivable but not blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? Are they not the same person in the form of the Trinity? Jesus wasn't implying here that the Holy Spirit was higher up on the Trinity ladder than he was, that it was possible for people to speak ill of Jesus and be forgiven because Jesus was an underling to the Holy Spirit. It wasn't which person of the Trinity that was being blasphemed that was being brought into judgment by Jesus. Rather, it was the message that was being conveyed by the Holy Spirit. These religious leaders were insisting that the power Jesus had to heal people came not from God, but from Satan. Jesus, in his warning, was stating that this was a message that God would not excuse and his judgment would be hard against those who promote it. To God and God alone was the credit to go for the healings that were being performed by Christ. I can forgive you for not recognizing my son and his mission, but I will not forgive, especially you, the religious leaders of my nation, Israel, for not recognizing my power at work. This was God's message to these leaders. The consequences would bring God's judgment on a nation, And any individual who persisted in that viewing, this was a brutally clear warning. Well, how does that warning apply to us today? 
Is it possible to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit in a way that's unforgivable today in the 21st century? To understand how these verses apply to us today, we really have to be mindful of the context surrounding the statements Jesus made. Jesus gave these warnings to the Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders of their day. Jesus had been miraculously healing people and casting out demons throughout Israel in their presence. They were witnesses to this. And they were attributing the power Jesus had to do such miracles erroneously to Satan instead of God. These leaders were likely doing this because they were jealous or they saw Jesus as a threat to their established power. Now this specific sin committed by the Pharisees and scribes against the Holy Spirit cannot be reproduced today. To do so would require Jesus' presence on earth with us right now, performing these same miracles as they were described in the Gospels. The sin the scribes committed was not out of ignorance or unbelief. They witnessed firsthand. In other words, they were present when Jesus performed these miracles. With all the knowledge of prophecy they had regarding the coming Messiah, they should have at least been asking themselves the question, could this be that Messiah that we've long been waiting for? Even if they weren't sure, or they wrongly came to the conclusion, no, this is not the one. Jesus said they could be forgiven. But to see the power through which Jesus healed people and cast out the demons, they had to have realized that this was God's spirit in action and not Satan, even if they didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. Even the uneducated people that they ruled over were beginning to wonder this. By openly denying what they knew to be true, these leaders were actually aligning themselves with Satan. They were in fact guilty of what they were accusing Jesus of, and that was being in league with Satan. This was a path Jesus warned them of that had no return if they continued to pursue, because the ultimate fate of Satan is eternal destruction, and along with him all those who choose to follow him. This is not a warning for those who fight against God's church out of ignorance or unbelief, and Paul can attest to that through what he stated in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, chapter 1, verse 13 when Paul says, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance. And unbelief. This is not a warning for those who deny Christ. Peter denied Christ three times, and Jesus not only forgave him, but he reinstated him as an apostle. This is not a warning against those who seem to struggle to gain victory over some habitual sin. When Peter asked Jesus, How many times should I forgive my brother? and Jesus said, Not seven, but seventy times seven. This was not a hard number. Jesus was simply implying, You continue to forgive your brother and sister. If you want God to continue, to forgive you, then you have to come to him with that repentant heart. And he will. If you sin against God one million times with the same sin and you come to God one million, one million and one times with a repentant heart, he will forgive you. This is not a warning against those who've wandered away from the faith. The story of the prodigal son attests to the fact that you can come home to God and he will welcome you with the open arms of a loving father. This is not a warning against some inexcusable sin against which from God that there is no way back, like cursing God or mocking God. We have that assurance in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, which reads, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There is not one sin that if we come to God with a repentant heart from, that is wanting our heart to turn around, away from that sin and turn to God, there's not one sin that he will not forgive us from. When the Pharisees and scribes claimed Jesus cast out demons by the power of Satan, they were doing far more than just speaking evil against Jesus. Jesus stated that if that's all that they were doing, 
they could be forgiven if their hearts were repentant. What they were doing was far more diabolical. Having all the evidence of the kingdom at hand, they set their faces against the very kingdom of God and became the servants of Satan. They were rejecting Jesus in full awareness of what they were doing. And they were thoughtful and conscious in their words and their actions and their rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit. Whether it was jealousy, hatred, or arrogance, they knowingly chose to lie to the people that they were charged with to tell the truth about This was a path for which there would be no forgiveness from once they commit to it, Jesus warned them of. It was not that God could not forgive them, but once established on that path and part of Satan's realm, their hearts would become incapable of being repentant. Well, is it possible for church leaders today to embark on such a path? And even though that we're not able to replicate that exact sin that the um, Pharisees and the scribes committed back in Jesus' days, Well, yes, I believe it is possible for church leaders who choose, and that's the key, who choose to knowingly follow and align themselves with Satan and his realm. I believe that it it may very well be the same fate for those of the unrepentant religious leaders. This is a harsh warning that though it was given to this group of men in Jesus' day, we also need to be mindful of it ourselves today. But as long as you remember that there's always a path back to God, no matter how far you stray, as long as you consciously choose never to give your heart and allegiance over to Satan, this is a warning that you never need to worry about. Well, this morning we've looked at three claims of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The announcing of Jesus as the Son of God by evil or unclean spirits. We have the lack of understanding of Christ's Lordship by his family. And we have the accusation denying his lordship, by some of the teachers of the law. David Milgard served 23 years in a prison for a crime he didn't commit. It was through the work of someone else's evidence in the DNA that he was finally exonerated. Jesus Christ was falsely accused, not of rape and murder, but of something much more serious. As heinous as those two crimes are, Jesus said, if that's the only accusation you're bringing against me, I can forgive you. But because these scribes in Mark and the Pharisees in the account in Matthew, because they both denied the power of the Holy Spirit and attributed Jesus' power to Satan, they were treading down a path from which there would be no return if they continued. A sober warning for us today. Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning and we're joyful in the fact that you loved us so much that you sent your son Jesus here to be that sacrifice for us, to be that atonement for us that we could not be for ourselves. And he was victorious over that grave. And we too can be victorious over our sins. Lord, I thank you for allowing us to show our repentance to you in this way. To come to Jesus. To cry out to Jesus. To accept Jesus as our Savior. And Lord, I pray that as we go away this morning, that we would be surely rejoicing in the knowledge that we are adopted into your family, into your kingdom. Because we love you, we adore you, and we worship you. And I pray for these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info 
at bfa.church. Until next time.